Hello and welcome to Meanwhile in a London Warehouse. My name's Owen Kelly and I'm here with Sophie Hope and Susanna Parsnan, who is Professor of Media Studies at the University of Durgu. And we're talking to Susanna because she's written a number of interesting papers, chapters and articles about amateur pornography, in particular user-generated pornography. And we want to explore the extent to which this can be considered as examples of cultural democracy in action. Susanna, can you, can you reflect a little on the, na- the nature and growth of user-generated pornography since Web 2? Well, I think people have always been making their own porn. It's just been a question of, well, both the tools of production, what they allow, let's say a film camera or a, a, or kind of a old school video camera versus digital tools, and then obviously a question of distribution. Um, so there's a lively history, poorly documented, but lively history of amateur porn preceding digital production. Um, and then there is a whole history of amateur porn produced through various means uh, preceding the web. But it's basically um, the kind of social media platforms emulate, let's say, two platforms emulating uh, YouTube, uh, different kinds of image-sharing image platforms that have sort of made the distribution of content easy. I mean, if you think of, like, let's say, a videotape and trying to circulate videotapes in order to create some kind of a network of of consumption that would have been clunky attempts were made. So they are, it's kind of obvious that the ease of both production, since we all go around with digital cameras and video cameras in our pockets, um, and then the kind of ease of using the online sharing platforms has sort of made things easier. But then of course that means that all we upload means that we are contributing to data capitalism. So so that's the flip side of it, what happens with the content, who makes money off the content. So when we're talking about cultural democracy and amateur porn, then it's, it's kind of a tricky thing because we have to think, on the one hand, the kind of diversity of production, and I would say there we have something that can be discussed in those terms. Um, but then when it comes to distribution, control, ownership, copyright concerning content, then that gets a little trickier. So, I mean, digital, I mean, think of Zubov's argument about how data capitalism is basically, um, it's not, it doesn't fare well with traditional notions of, of democracy. But one of, one of the things that interested me from uh, the two papers of yours that I was looking at, uh, especially the one Labours of Love, NetPorn, Web2, and the meanings of amateurism, was your description of, or your reflection upon other people's descriptions of, uh, amateur porn as a gift economy. Amateur porn is in some ways, firstly, standing outside the normal exchange of, of the capitalist marketplace, and secondly, in a way that you didn't specifically refer to, but re- it reminded me of Alvin Toffler's 70s or 80s definition of prosumers, where the gap between producers and consumers narrows or becomes very, very fuzzy, and the audience are effectively acting as producers and sharing material amongst themselves. Was this a phase, or is this still going on? Well, if you look at the production side of things, um, then the kind of what a prosumerism or what Axel Brands calls um, producage, 
or Henry Jenkins's whole thing about participatory culture, um, it is about the kind of erosion of boundaries between who makes and consumes media. Um, and, and obviously that has, that has transformed um, on online platforms, independent of what we're looking at, whether it's porn or something completely different. Music could be one example, other examples to exist. Um, but then it's a question of, of through what platforms gifts are given. <laughs> so if you look at people generating it, it can be this labour of love, you know, I'm doing this because I like it and I like to be seen and I like to look at other people. And this is a way that Usenet kind of exchanges in particular have been described. But if you think of something like webcamming um, or let's say amateur videos uploaded on something like Pornhub, the leading porn video aggregator site, which started out as an amateur porn site. It was about amateur content and it's become this kind of monster that's killing independent pornography at the moment. It's basically um, IT dudes making off money from the labour of others in terms of content. So the kind of platform politics um, makes the gift economy pretty um, difficult to make these days. So when I wrote the Labours of Love article, I think I wrote it in 2009. Um, it just was slow coming out because of academic publishing. Um, so Pornhub started in 2007, but it took a couple of years before they become before tube sites really made it. So the tube economy has changed things drastically um, in the realm of online porn in general. Um, and in the realm of amateur porn, I mean, it's sort of part of the package. Susanna, are there are there any um, examples of um, co-owned independent platforms that um, challenge that digital capitalism? Well, they are in independent platforms, and they're obviously they are independent entrepreneurs who, you know, try to keep things afloat by by sort of generating, let's say, pay models that are outside sort of these kind of centralised because porn distribution is it's more centralised than it's ever been and it's centralised on on two platforms uh, the majority of which are owned by MindGeek that owns Pornhub and Xvideos and, and no, not Xvideos but RedTube. Xvideos, Xhamster are the only, they're not independent but they're independent of MindGeek um, so there, there is a whole kind of economy of independent stuff but since distribution is so centralised, that's not where the majority of people go. And that whole part is not easy to find, partly because people don't want to pay for their porn. Um, and it's not always viable to sort of keep things afloat without any money at all. Although the, the kind of social media economy might suggest that, you know, we just upload and it's all funny, but I mean, all fine. But of course, the infrastructure is rather, it's rather expensive to maintain. Servers are cheaper than they used to be, but they're not precisely free. I mean, there are platforms in Finland, there's the Alaston Suomi, Naked Finland, that's advertised as the IRC gallery for adults. Um, and it's independent in the sense that it's um, it's not connected to any kind of centralised ownership that I know of. Um, and it's basically people uploading their own stuff, um, and a kind of a, you could call it, I think, a social networking kind of a site. Um, and it's, I mean, within the confines of Finland, it's 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 rather popular. Um, and then there are all kinds of kind of specialised platforms for people who are in, into particular kinds of stuff. But thinking about the distribution of, of amateur porn in, in general, um, 
um, on the one hand, it's become part of sort of pay content, in the and that's Krishna Piahofer has been writing about this. So it's basic, basically people need to perform a certain version of intimacy and domesticity that qualifies as amateur in order to create an appealing product. So it's about it's about the aesthetics of amateurism. Um, so there's kind of an economy that revolves around that in order for amateur porn to be popular and in that sense to be to stand out from the mass of it because there's a huge mass of it. Um, it has to be porn of a certain kind. But then of course if we go to kind of queer kink side of things it looks very, very different. And that's with porn. I mean it's always the case that this the diversity of porn and the diversity of sexual cultures that then feed into porn and vice versa. That sort of make generalizations difficult, although obviously I generalize all the time. Um, but the main trend, of course, is this kind of centralization of, of distribution that's unprecedented and I'm, I'm kind of concerning. Can I, can I take you back to something you just said us a few seconds ago and check that I understood it correctly? Um, did I understand that you're saying that uh, the aesthetics of pornography is learnt and that, in a, in a sense, the same way as the explosion of selfies as a phenomenon has led to this ad- adoption of the sort of duck face pose that people always have when they take selfies. Are you saying that people are learning to produce proper amateur pornography, in quote marks, by watching amateur pornography? Well, porn is a media genre, and, and sort of, and according, I mean, according to any rules of the genre, certain things have to happen in it. Um, and I would say that porn, out of popular media genres, it's more generic than most in the sense of, of, of poses, of scenes, of acts. The whole thing with the cum shots, if we're talking about straight porn, you know, where they have to land and how people need to be and and how bodies need to be facing the camera, otherwise you can't really see much. So the techniques of actually shooting porn, how do you do it? Um, and I would say that people are not learning that necessarily by watching an amateur porn. They look, they're learning by watching porn in general. I mean, Niels van Dorn wrote about this 10 years ago, I think. Uh, looking at the most popular amateur porn videos on something, I think you porn, maybe one of those sites, one of the Mind Geek sites. Um, looking at the, I think, hundred most popular amateur porn videos, and really, I mean, his argument was that that the most popular content really reproduces the codes and conventions of conventional, let's say, conventional mainstream commercial porn. So, in a way, in order to appeal to to an audience base, it needs to have certain things in it. I mean, to be fair, I mean, who... Well, I'm sure somebody will find very appealing a video with two people getting it on with a camera that never moves and you sort of see bits of skin moving back and forth. Um, but the idea of porn is basically to... to to be more than, to generate, like, a, some kind of a spectacle that would then mediate the intensity of bodies enjoying, maybe, or doing something. Um, so the kind of skin rubbing on skin, it might be a fetish thing for some, but usually in, in porn there has to be kind of a skill to how it's made, otherwise you can't really see much and you can't really mediate the intensity of bodies 
just by seeing something move back and forth. So I think it's uh, I think it's basically um, amateur porn is part of porn, um, and different aesthetics happen in porn. But I would say that the aesthetics of amateur porn aren't that distinct from from commercially produced ones, except for the kinds of bodies we may see, the kind of environments where porn is being shot, and then the relations between the people who are doing it. But the idea that amateur porn is like um, like void of ethical issues, while commercial porn is rife with them, I think that's always been a very naive argument, because if we know anything about, um, let's say, relationships and violence, then the home is the most dangerous place for heterosexual women. Um, so the idea that you know partnership and sexuality within partnership is kind of a safe space. Um, looking at an amateur porn clip, we can't know if the people performing in it have given consent to that clip being produced, to that clip being distributed. Do they know it's around? Um, we don't really know what the relations between the people making it. But there's this idea of you know amateurism um, that is a labor of love. It's not made for commercial purposes. It's made because people enjoy it and they enjoy each other and blah blah blah. Fair enough, that can be the case, but we really don't know by looking at the clips. So it's it's a it's a kind of a complex thing. Are there any porn sites or places where porn might be distributed where that is made explicitly clear? That is. Uh, any porn producers, amateur porn producers, who explicitly make their real-life relationships a part of their production process or their distribution process? Well, I mean, that is that happens. And, of course, in order to upload any clip anywhere, you have to, you have to sort of click a box that says all people performing are, you know adults and you know have given informed consent blah 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 that doesn't mean that that informed consent is always it's always a fact um, but yes I mean there are multiple sites I mean in the UK the make love not porn site which is a it's a pay site as they've gotten a lot of publicity for their aim to make kind of more ethical sort of better porn for people so out of commercial ventures that's maybe the one I don't know it's the most popular but it's gotten a fair amount of um, attention. Um, and and couples making porn, I mean, in the early web history, wifey's world would have been one example, and I think they're still going, which is this kind of husband-wife combo who make porn. So, and that was one of the first success stories. I think they started 95 or 6 or something fairly early. Um, so it's, the kind of relationship pattern has been part of, the whole appeal of amateur porn from the start, but just thinking about the diversity of people uploading content at the moment and the different kinds of platforms where that can be done. Um, sort of amateur porn like porn, it comes in many shapes and forms and different kinds of ethics and aesthetics or lack thereof. One of the things that... It um, you're, when I was reading your articles, um, I found really helpful when we were when we were thinking about cultural democracy. Was your you were just mentioning it this sort of warning about um, assuming that the sort of amateur-led side of porn production is more ethical than the commercial um, centralised versions? 
and um, we often talk about cultural democracy in relation to democratisation of culture um, and it's, it, it made me rethink the dualism that we're perpetuating by talking about things in these two different ways and how codependent they actually are on each other and fluid and um, that when we talk about cultural democracy we don't just mean the kind of the ethical good um, side of production and distribution that there is um, you know there is also non you know non-consent and potentially um, unethical exploitative practices um, going on so um, yeah I just found that a useful reminder and thinking broadly about these things and I well, on that note with the um, thinking about consent and exploitation the uh, the economic models even for paid paid sites um, which may be independent and sort of set themselves up as more ethical how do they have you got any really practical examples of how they distribute that funding because is it to pay for the site to kind of keep the site going or does it mean that people are paid fairly for the for the porn work they're doing is it how, how does the, how does the money get redistributed well it, de- it depends on on how much money they make so obviously obviously the site has to be i mean you have to pay for the maintenance costs um and in an ideal world people could make a living off the porn they do um but i think in all realms of porn it's become increasingly well like in the cultural industries in general it's become a gig economy so everyone is basically an independent entrepreneur whether they want to be or not living you know from one gig to another so so i mean in in terms of the performers and, and the directors and the producers so if people running their own sites are kind of it might be not the main source of, of income. Um, it might be just one part of the palette. They might do webcaming, they might do all kinds of stuff on the side. Um, and for the longest time, if we talk about porn in general, escorting used to be rather distinct from porn work. And Heather Berg has been doing really interesting work on what's happening in, in porn production in general, because because of the centralization of distribution and MindGeek not only runs most of the tube sites but they've also bought up a lot of production companies that have been struggling since Pornhub and others pirate their content and there's no I mean there's a DVD market but it's not really thriving so traditional revenue models for the porn industry they really are in in crisis pay sites in general are not doing really well kink.com which was like a success story um, it's not really a success story these days. So money is being made of webcaming and very specialised niche content. That's basically what's happening, and otherwise it's the kind of tube model. So within this economy, um, revenues or in, any kind of income for um, a performer, mm. it's less than it used to be, and it's much more precarious, partly because there's more talent around willing to do the labour. Um, so escorting has become part of the palette. So escorts might do a scene in porn in order to amp up their own kind of uh, professional image. People doing porn might do escorting because then they will get sort of more money off the escorting. So it's become this kind of mixed economy and very precarious at that. Um, 
And then people running their independent sites have to sort of manoeuvre in that environment in order to make money. Usually they are rather specialised. Um, or then they have to have a rather, let's say, not just interactive, but sort of um, substantial relationship to the audience. So this kind of um, idea that you produce content and people consume it, it's more, it's becoming more sort of um, custom-made content. So a lot of interaction uh, with the audience about what they need and what they, you know, what they would like to see in that porn. In some instances, it's as specific as people doing this custom order porn. So someone will send a request for a particular kind of thing that they want to see, and then they will pay for that to be produced and given to them without that necessarily being distributed in public at all. So the economies are very, very diverse, um, but increasingly it's precarious for all parties concerned. Maybe unless we're talking about producers for one of the better known brands like Brasses or something like that. The money really is in the centralised uh, platform business. Um, and with stuff like the UK porn ban, that's going to happen. Um, the age verification system that's going to come into effect in the UK, it's being bought for MindGeek. So MindGeek uh, will get money <clears throat> from uh, blocking access to porn that they produce and that others produce. And it will basically uh, render UK-produced independent pornography um, of the minoritarian sort. Um, it will, I mean, it will make them go out of business because sites will have to pay MindGeek for uh, verifying the age of everyone who visits the site. And out of those, it's it's a fraction of a fraction of a fraction who will actually pay for the porn. So they will, the companies have to pay MindGeek, the company that pirates their own content for people to access their site. So it's, it's, um, it's kind of a, it, it will not be happy business in that, on that island anytime soon. <laughs> but what, where does that leave what we originally started talking about, which is amateur porn? That is, I presume there is still a minority of people who are producing as producing real core in the terms that um, Messina talks about it where they're filming it because you're part of the game as well. You're the audience. They get horny because somebody's getting horny over them. Presumably those people are not operating necessarily in a money, a currency-based economy. And so will, it, will this lead, will the laws in England lead to a, a rise in underground Born, buried again in IRC channels or whatever, which are gift economy based or personal interest based. I don't think there's. I don't think that's ne- ever gone away. It's just, in terms of the distribution, it's, it's a very marginal thing. So Messina was looking at at Usenet. So news groups have never gone away. Um, we get all kinds of closed groups, also on. I mean, web based closed groups. Um, where stuff happens, but in the in the framework of the web, because social media sites now that Tumblr has the ban as well since December, um, any kind of nudity, sexual content is it's completely zoned out of commercial social media platforms. And since sociability in I mean mundane sociability is increasingly structured um, 
on those platforms, it means that any kind of sexual subculture or anything, it doesn't have to be a subculture, sexual culture, uh, it sort of has to take itself somewhere else. Um, so I think it, it, there is this kind of need um, for alternative platforms. And of course, alternatives to Tumblr, for example, do exist. Um, and some of them are more thriving than others. Um, so, yes, um, closed groups um, and also specialised groups, maybe not in IRC, maybe, I, I can't really... For me, it's difficult to see, like, let's say, people in their 20s going to do it on Usenet because it's it's rather clunky mm. and it is what it is. Um, but I would say that since we live in the data economy um, and the circulation of data is something that, well, basically, we all know what that does. Um, and sex does sell. So I think there will always, always be platforms for the for the distribution, for the sharing of, of sexual content. How those can be found and, and who runs them is a, is a different kind of thing. So we can look forward then to the development of socialist platforms, by which so, socialist <laughs> I mean self-organised autonomous, partially hidden platforms, which don't necessarily well, have, have entrepreneurial reasons at their core. Well, I think it's always going to be mixed. I mean, it depends what you mean with entrepreneurial. But in, in order to run a site and in order to keep it afloat, there has to be, like somebody has to be into that part of mm. the operation, mm. otherwise it's not gonna it's not gonna work but it doesn't necessarily have to be this kind of startup kind of, kind of a kind of a thing um, either and and I mean Kingster exists there's all kinds of um, platforms that have been around for a long time where it, they commerce is part of the thing but it's not the reason they exist it's not the reason that that they are being run um, but I, I think I mean obviously it's not a binary um, whenever we're talking about media, we're talking about money, if we're talking about media activism, we're talking about money because the, the gear comes from someplace. Um, so we're always implicated in the, in the capitalism. There's no way around it, but there are many ways to be implicated in that economy. Exactly, yes. Now, I was thinking, I was thinking about this in, t in terms of what you mentioned earlier about using music as another example of uh, cultural production and reception that's gone digital. And I was thinking there, there are still many sorts of people making many different sorts of music. And some people would see themselves very definitely as emulating or wanting to be part of a mainstream music industry run by three global companies. But there are other people who are fanatical about free jazz or, or soundscaping who may absolutely not see themselves as having any viability within a, within a mainstream market and maybe in the sense that we're talking now about amateur pornography maybe in that equivalent position where entrepreneurialism in the sense of enriching oneself is simply not part of the plan so mm. yeah so i mean it, it can be but it doesn't it doesn't need to be and if you think about Singular people on something like Alaston Suomi, uh, their interests might be rather diverse. Some of them just like the the attention and the kind of economy of likes and views. It might be a very personal project project of of um, enjoying oneself or learning to enjoy oneself. 
in an environment where you don't have to be face to face with other people, that there's the screen to sort of provide a sense of distance. It can be a hookup device. Um, it can be um, a platform for acquiring a customer base. It can sort of be many things. I mean, in terms of the individual people who post their pictures or, or, or videos, some of them might aspire towards some kind of a micro celebrity or or internet celebrity. Whereas for others, it might just be this this pleasure of self flashing. I mean, all of that happens on that platform. So, of course, the the interests and motivations of, of singular people is always going to be very, very diverse. But then thinking about the kind of platforms on which that happens and, and why people run those platforms, um, I would say it's equally diverse, but there has to be this kind of, a different kind of um, sense of the economy and the final, financial part of it. So that's the big difference in, in terms of something like Usenet, right. where that really wasn't much of a concern. Right. Or early web, for that matter, actually. True. And g- g- one final question, because I was actually interested personally in this. I was, um, when I read through your paper, I went and looked at uh, beautifulagony.com. And oh, it's still it's going. It's still going, <laughs> yes, it's still there. And I looked through the introductory video. And what I was interested in around that was whether, it, whether by any normal definition, it constituted pornography, Not by any any traditional standard, but then again, definitions of porn are are really kind of crap. No, true, true, true. <laughs> I mean, many people have attempted to define pornography, and many people have failed. Um, so it's 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 not sexually explicit in the sense that you don't see anything except for the the head, sort of, or the upper torso cropped, not even the torso. Um, but then you think about the other definitions of porn that it's about the content that it's meant to arouse or that depicts sexual arousal, then, of course, that would fall into that category. Um, so I remember years ago I was teaching a porn class um, in Tampere, um, and, I mean, I tend to show clips from Beautiful Agony when teaching porn, and I remember that in the student feedback, because I did show all kinds of stuff, that was the example that people found most disturbing. <laughs> because of the intimacy of the sound, right? The, because the sound, it really operates a lot through true sound. There was something about it that that sort of lingered with the people. So it has a particular kind of visceral appeal. Uh, whether we categorize it as as pornography in the traditional sense, I mean, the same company runs all kinds of things that are categorizable as porn, but it's 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 definitely playing uh, with the conventions of the genre, right. And I, I thought that was that was interesting in the sense that it's on, it's only possible through a kind of communal web-based activity that you would get sufficient interest in that. It's not something you would come up with, would have come up with 50 years ago, if you were a pornographer. I... No, I mean, I mean people get they get paid for uploading their videos, and it's, it is a commercial venture. But I don't think it's a particular money maker in the sense that, that people aren't buying condos with the money they make off that site. But then again, I really don't know. I mean, the same company has this a range of sites. Um, but as with a lot of the... Um, I mean, even with MindGeek, it's not a listed company, so we don't know the details of the financial part of things. So we can always guess, and many guesses have been made. Um, but it's a bit of a black, black, block, black, black box 
um, in terms of how how much money is made and, and where the money goes because they don't need to tell and why would they tell? Mm, indeed. Okay, um, Sophie, do you have any, um, any uh, more questions? What, well, I did have a question um, about the... I mean, I think it appears on um, an area of the ethical side of things, which I know you're, the research papers I've looked at have a you know, kind of purposely um, avoiding those sort of debates, I suppose. But I was thinking about, in relation to cultural democracy, if we're thinking about the, the grassroots movements and DIY kind of culture of, um, of cultural production, when it comes to porn, is there a, an issue or, that comes up around the, the difficulty in monitoring, um, for example, the more exploitative end of porn, I suppose, like the, the revenge porn aspects, the, the um, uh, ch- children, you know, viewing and producing porn... Um, side of things like so I guess the more the argument for it becoming more centralized and formalized and legalized is that you can kind of monitor and check those things more I don't know is there a is, is that come up as well in the research and well kind of image recognition software tends to be pretty crap but they've been used for a long, long time to weed out child porn in particular from any kind of web platform. Um, so, I mean, that's been in use on commercial porn sites for years now. Um, and the kind of rules are rather strict in terms of you can't upload with anything, um, with any kind of animals. Uh, you can't upload anything with kitties, obviously. Um, and even in terms of tags that you can use, you can't use tags like rape. You can't use certain kind of tags. Um, so there's that kind of... Um, and we're talking about something like Pornhub here. So child porn, basically, it's in the deep web and has been for a while. You're unlikely to discover it from any kind of openly accessible web platform um, because it's been, let's say, campaigns against that have been organised for a long, long time. Uh, Revenge porn uh, attempts to tackle it, I mean, have been happening and and sort of legal steps have been taken towards that. Sites like Alastair and Swami, and they will take down stuff that's suspected to be revenge porn, but of of course somebody has to report it and... And there is no automatic way of of sort of weeding out content where informed consent has not been given. Um, but as kind of ventures, uh, revenge porn sites, they are rather particular formats. So they are very distinct um, kind of conceptual sites um, and, the, and the financial part because basically they are blackmail operations. So they, they sort of, they are not in the tube economy as such. They are their own kind of subgenre. Um, so, of course, I mean, let's say in any kind of discussions on, on sexuality, consent is always key. Uh, and when we're talking about mediated representations of sexuality that often play with the trope of non-consent, um, it is complex figuring it out. Let's say in amateur porn stories, because the lit- I mean, we've been talking about basically audiovisual content here, but there's a very vibrant community for a long, long time on amateur porn story writers, or you might call it erotica. And in those, in it's in a site like Lit Erotica, which has been around for 20-something years. Um, 
non-consent is, um, I think, the second or third most popular. Yeah, it's the third third most popular category, following incest and taboo. So any kind of, um, so kind of, Im- let's say imagination concerning or, or pornographic fantasies, they tend to in the written word, revolve around things that are taboo or forbidden or somehow trying out that boundary between, you know, what might be pleasurable and what might be, what might not be what you're allowed to do and what definitely you should not do. And that's part of the kind of pornographic fantasy. Um, And you can see the same thing happening in actually user-generated animated porn and sort of graphic porn, I mean, drawings. There's a similar play with both, actually, incest and and sort of non-consent scenarios um, happening. But as with the aesthetics of porn, whether it's commercial or non-commercial, amateur or something else, um, the um, mm. the ethics are also rather diverse. <laughs> and in some instances, uh, in the 90s, pornscape in particular, the lack kind of the lack of consent. And, and particular, let's say, maybe not lack of ethics, but let's say open misogyny with something like Max Hardcore, which is probably the best known example. Um, it's been broadly covered. Success of Max Hardcore basically was this kind of rampant misogyny, um, which is rather, and he went to prison for some stuff, We're not related to porn, but distribution or tax evasion came back and started doing very different kind of porn. So the kind of attraction of... Well, I'm sure Max Hardcore had an ethics somewhere buried there, but um, there's this kind of attraction that goes to behaving really, really badly and roughly and being as hardcore as you can get. That sort of... That comes in with the genre, and then people sort of deal with that in very, very different ways. And I guess Max Hardcore, to a certain extent, was dealing with the taboo in his own products, um, which haven't necessarily dated all that well. Okay, thank, thank you, Susanna. Let's leave it there then. And I think, um, yeah, thank you. And uh, <laughs> we'll get back to you later. Thanks, Susanna. Take care. <laughs> thank you both. <laughs> you too. Bye. Bye.